Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. To build a superstar innovation ecosystem, we should take lessons from the successful regions of today and look back throughout history as well. Today we do just that, as I am joined by Chelsea Follett to discuss her new book, Centers of Progress, 40 Cities That Changed the World. Our journey starts with the cities that created farming and writing and goes all the way up to the digital revolution in Silicon Valley. Chelsea is a policy analyst in the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity and the managing editor of humanprogress.org, a project of the Cato Institute that seeks to educate the public on the global improvements in well-being by providing free empirical data on long-term developments. Her writing has been published in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Newsweek, Forbes, The Hill, Business Insider, National Review, The Washington Examiner, and Global Policy Journal. She was named to Forbes' 30 Under 30 list for 2018 in the category of law and policy. Chelsea, welcome to the Austin Next Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited about this, and it was... Uh, I almost kind of laughed with the whole Rome meme going around and, of course, then reading about uh, Rome during the, uh, in the book. I want to start off with a really basic question. How are you defining a city? We go from, you know, ancient Jericho and Athens all the way to modern New York and Tokyo. And I'm not really sure that people in ancient times would call those a city. I don't even know what they would call it. Oh, that's a great question. So the book, uh, as you just mentioned, goes all the way from the Neolithic Revolution, the Agricultural Revolution, to the Digital Revolution. And over that great span of history, the population of the world has changed considerably. Back uh, in the time in which Jericho is featured in the book, the entire population of the world was roughly equivalent to the current population of Portugal. And that's it. That was all of the people wow. in the world. So the population of Jericho was roughly equivalent to the rural town of Victor, Idaho, uh, but it would have been the most densely populated place on the planet at the time. It would have felt like a bustling metropolis. It's difficult for us to uh, really conceptualize that change, but it's true that many of the early cities, while they were all uh, huge gathering places, urban centers for their time, for their era, many of them would not meet our modern standard uh, or definition of city at all. And uh, Probably the uh, loosest I play with the word city would be for the very last chapter, San Francisco, in which I talk about the digital revolution and many of the advances in early computing and the internet took place in a whole range of different places in that San Francisco Bay Area. So while that chapter does focus on San Francisco, it also talks about some advancements in San Diego and in the broader San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah, it, it's funny when you mentioned that because I really, as I was reading the San Francisco chapter, it was it struck me because San Francisco is used, I think, in many ways as a moniker for the city itself, but then a a, a broader you know, label for the entire region. So, as we think about some of the spread that has occurred, and I think about something like DFW or even in Austin, which is really kind of turning into a multi hub uh, city, 
how would you define it today? I mean, is it is it really the these regions and metros more than the stereotypical borders of a city? The book isn't, and I'm not hung up on the precise definition of a city. But the main lesson to take away from the book is not that cities of one particular size are necessarily the most likely to become centers of progress, but just wherever people gather, wherever you have a relatively large number of people for the era, whether they're more densely uh, packed together, they're more spread out, uh, I'm indifferent on. But whenever you've got more people gathered together, you have a greater number of people who can engage in collaboration, competition, exchange of goods, exchange of ideas. And that is often what leads to great creativity. You just said they're the kind of densely populated in size for the era. So back to the point we said that the different sizes of these cities have changed drastically over time, but we've seen that these smaller cities were able to create world-changing innovations and progress. So does that give us almost like a threshold? Can you have something the size of Jericho today creating innovations or did something shift in that we suddenly need it to be 10 times larger to have that kind of agglomeration effects that you see in innovation and progress? The book begins with Jericho because Jericho is what many historians believe to be the first city. Therefore, it made a lot of logical sense. And it also is located in the region of the world where we know agriculture began. We don't know precisely where that started, but we do know that that transition was connected to permanent settlement and the establishment of cities. So even though it was a relatively small gathering of people by our modern standards, at the time it would have been revolutionary. That change probably did not take place all at once. Obviously, we don't have records of how it happened exactly, but it's thought to have been gradual with hunter-gatherers likely camping out for longer and longer periods at particular sites every year until that transition to permanent settlement. So this was probably a very slow, multi-generational thing that we're talking about, not a sudden burst of creativity owed to a few individuals. If you look at the more recent chapters in the book, which tend to take place in much larger cities with much bigger populations, uh, what you see is that the innovations often took place over just a few decades. So progress has been in many ways speeding up and having more people available today to engage in that kind of exchange of ideas, debates, discussion, collaboration, competition, that has probably helped. When you were thinking about these centers of progress, and the answer, I guess, is it depends, it's both, but were you thinking about places that were the first place for something to occur, like we were saying with, uh, like, I don't know how to pronounce it really, Uruk, like the birthplace of, of writing? Is, is it that kind of mark in history, or is it this led to the diffusion of this innovation where I think about when we had Florence, which is really is the epicenter of the Renaissance, and it didn't just stay in Florence, it, went, you know, it spread across Europe. So for the vast majority of these, I was looking either at a city that was the first to create some groundbreaking achievement or innovation, or that represented the epitome or the peak, arguably, of some form of achievement. Now, the book's definition 
of progress is probably what we should get into here. I'm using a very non-controversial, not politicized definition of progress that's very wide-ranging, everything from scientific innovations and advancements, technological advancements to artistic achievements and achievements in legal equality and human rights and so forth. So it's a very wide-ranging definition of progress. Now, when it comes to things like artistic achievements in particular, those chapters tend not to be focused on the first place to create an art form, although there are some examples of that, like Kyoto, the first to create the novel. There, those chapters tend to instead be focused on what represents arguably a peak or a pinnacle of an art form. So the classical music of Vienna, for example, still very widely played and considered by many people to be uh, a sort of a peak of the musical art form. Uh, Agra, the place which uh, erected the Taj Mahal, considered by many to be the world's most beautiful building. They didn't create the first building. They didn't invent architecture, but they, according to many people, uh, perfected it. They certainly created one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. So when we're thinking about progress, and I've had this question quite a bit, and I appreciate your definition, where do you draw the difference between the word progress and the word innovation? And how are they different? So I've had this kind of, like, I use a very wide-ranging definition of innovation, because I always try to be like, it's not just startups, it could be anything from art to large companies to the way we just think about things. So where's, where for you is the line between those two words? While I'm not overly concerned, again, with precise definitions, I would consider an innovation to be something new, a, a change, whereas progress could simply be a recombination of things that already exist in a very visually pleasing manner, or it could be the establishment of a law that puts into practice an idea that had already been around. Hmm. So besides the 40 is a great number, why these 40 were there some on the line that you were looking at and what was kind of the tipping point to, to draw the line here? Well, that is a great question that we could spend a lot of time on in this interview. Uh, so the way I came up with the 40 was I reverse engineered it. Basically, I came up with a list of different aspects of modern civilization that I felt were important and often taken for granted. Things like writing, a stable food supply, sanitation. And then I tried to trace those innovations to particular origin points. Now, when I began writing, I didn't have it in mind that these would all be cities necessarily, but that's what it, it turned yeah, into. Now, there were many different innovations on that original list that I made, which I couldn't end up tracing to one particular origin point. Uh, you know, fire, obviously, incredibly mm -hmm. important, but we don't know exactly where that was first used. Animal husbandry, also very hard to pinpoint the origin of. Metallurgy, electricity, it was sort of uh, dispersed in how that was uh, first harnessed. Flight occurred in an empty North Carolina field, so it doesn't really fit with the the city theme of the book. And so that was left out. Uh, there are so many different innovations, which you cannot trace to a particular place, but a shocking number could be. And that's how we ended up with centers of progress. Now, there were, of course, some uh, innovations that could be traced arguably to two places. And it was a very close call to decide which one to feature. Liberal democracy, for example, in the chapter on the American Revolution, I was deciding between uh, for some time, whether to feature Boston 
or Philadelphia for that. Mm-hmm. And I spoke to some historian friends of mine. A number of them came down on the side of Boston because of all the military victories, all the things that were happening there. But Philadelphia, ultimately, I decided on because that's where so much of that new idea of liberal democracy was being put into practice. And I just felt that it went. Um, it was the clearer choice for that chapter in the book. Is there any reason besides diversity of cities that something didn't show up twice? A city, particularly a city, didn't show up twice. Oh, that's a good question. So each city is featured in the book, as you know, having read it, at a particular moment in time. And like most history books, it moves uh, chronologically. It's a book that looks at progress geographically, but also chronologically. And so there is that question of, could you feature a city in different eras? Could you feature uh, you know, London during one period of its history and also during a completely different period of its history for a different innovation. And I didn't end up doing that because in each chapter, although they're focused on particular eras, I think that I did an okay job of also mentioning other achievements that took place in that particular city at other points in time as well toward the beginning or end of those chapters. So I didn't feel the need to do that. There's uh, in terms of cities that almost made the list, I did almost at one point uh, include a chapter on modern music as well as classical music. And one of the possible contenders for that would have been the Memphis in the United States. So then I would have had a Memphis in ancient Egypt and a Memphis in the U.S. and it would have been the same city name, but different cities. That could have been fun and a connection there. <laughs> yeah, it would have been. But that ended up not happening. So none of the cities are featured twice. And all the seas that you'd expect are, of course, there. Florence during the Renaissance, Athens uh, during the classical era, uh, Paris during the Enlightenment, and so forth. But I think that the book actually did end up being quite geographically diverse as well, as you said. At least half of the cities are, around half the cities are not a part of what's traditionally considered Western history. And I think that no matter how much of a history buff you are, there are at least a few cities in this book that will surprise you. I certainly learned a lot about the cities that I had not heard of in my own history courses uh, while researching this book. And geographic diversity was not the goal. You can see in the map at the beginning of the book that the cities in this, in this book are very spread out, but they're also not evenly spread out. You can see that even though the book moves chronologically, it also in some sense does move geographically because at the beginning, the early chapters, so many of them are focused in the Middle East, really, in that Fertile Crescent region where civilization began, this region that gave us agriculture, writing, uh, written legal codes. And then it moves out into Asia and Europe. And for the more recent cities in the modern age, so many of them are in the United States. And uh, so some regions are represented more than others. If I had to guess where future centers of progress might be, I'd expect that in the future, uh, especially with just where the, the population centers of the world are going to be, we'd expect to see a lot more in Africa coming up in the future. All of the progress points, and I think this is probably intentional, were very positive. But clearly there are second order effects of things like gunpowder's not on here. So what was your thought about including things that could be more gray when you say from a, from a progress mm-hmm. perspective, but they clearly changed the course of the world. You could also put, you know, Los Alamos and you know, the nuclear bomb, right? So, which again, they gave us nuclear energy. So what was yeah. your kind of thought process on, on some of those? 
Right. A subtitle like Cities That Changed the World could represent positive change or negative change, right? But I thought that the main title of the book, Centers of Progress, hopefully made clear that I was trying to focus positive change. We see so many histories now that are quite negative. Obviously, people are interested in military history, and you can find a few instances of that in the book as well, but it's not the main focus. The Dutch waterline, for example, in the Amsterdam chapter, fascinating military tactic. But the book was focused on progress, meaning changes that furthered human well-being in some way. Now, war is fascinating. It's important to study. But most people would probably agree that war itself is not a positive thing for human well-being for the people living through that war, right? even if the the cause is just. Um, So the main focus of the book was not war or military victories. In fact, one of the main factors uh, that unite almost all the centers of progress in the book, although there are exceptions, is that they tend to reach their creative peak and make their greatest contributions to uh, human achievement, to human progress during eras of relative peace. Uh, we talked about one of the factors being that they tend to be highly populated, at least relative to their era. Another factor is that they tended to be relatively peaceful. Now, there again are exceptions. Um, Mines in Germany uh, is an example where the chaos in the city became a sort of catalyst for change. And it is true that you can have none of the proper ingredients for progress, yet people somehow still find a way with human ingenuity to push through and make progress. Uh, But that is the exception rather than the rule. It tends to be the case that when your city is at peace, it's not involved in any major conflict or war, that people are able to focus instead on furthering human well-being, whether that's through increasing the prosperity of their city, the living standards of the people there, creating incredible artworks, or inventing uh, new incredible devices, discovering scientific principles. These things tend to happen when people aren't focused on how to defeat the enemy and and kill one another in a war. A different kind of ingenuity comes about during that time. So is there anything to be learned from the fact that some of these cities are basically archaeological sites today? Other ones, even if you go back far enough, are still in existence, but not kind of what they were, as you said, their peak. And other ones are still major metropolitan economic centers of growth for the for the world. Is there anything to kind of think about from those kind of different aspects and why some cities survived and some didn't? And is there any linkage to the moments of progress you were you found? I think that word moments really is key. One of the main takeaways from this book is just how brief these so-called golden ages of these different cities often were, in many cases lasting only a few decades. And that, I think, just goes to show that we need to uh, try to safeguard whatever policies and institutions can further progress because it is so fragile and these things can be lost so easily. You see this again and again in the book, whether it was in, you know, think of Baghdad, for example. This is not a city which today, while it exists, we don't think of it normally as a center of progress or scholarship or innovation right now. Back in the, uh, during the Abbasid dynasty, it was home to the House of Wisdom. And this was a world-class center of scholarship that attracted people from 
all over the world, particularly uh, the Muslim world. But it was actually very diverse and they were very accepting at that time relative to other uh, cities. They're accepting of different cultures and different religious backgrounds. And that openness really allowed the scholarship in the city to flourish. And that's how they, uh, that's in part how they were able to make so many groundbreaking achievements in areas like mathematics and astronomy that were cutting edge for the time. And then unfortunately, a faction rose to power in the city that was not as open to uh, the foreign uh, peoples, different backgrounds, different cultures. And the city became much more closed and that contributed to its ultimate unraveling as a center of scholarship and of progress. And this is a story that we see again and again. But sometimes it seems to be embedded in their, the DNA of the city. I mean, two cities that kind of come to mind. One was um, Cambridge, where you were talking about, obviously, the, the physics revolution with Isaac Newton. But then I remember, you know, a line in the book, you were like, oh, by the way, we, it still was producing, you know, hydrogen and the electron and the neutral. It didn't stop back in the 1600s, it was still very much a part of what that was. And um, and then another city, I think it was like Paris, where recently I've been kind of, Paris in the 1920s and the cafe culture uh, is kind of very much on my on my mind and we, we can get to that. But what was funny when I was reading the Enlightenment, I was like, oh, well, this is a lot of what we're talking about from the 1920s is, was around in the 1600s. It's still very much the same underlying components of that city and that's maintained. So how do we think about those that really maintain that still that it, it's not a moment anymore. It's still that same. It really is as a center in that, in that through line. I think it's exactly as you say, when you're looking at Paris in the 1920s, you notice that it still had maintained something in common with Paris during the enlightenment, right? Which is this sort of openness to new or strange ideas, uh, strange people, new characters, people, uh, debate, intellectual discussion, the discussion of controversial ideas and allowing for that, that's very powerful. If you can maintain that kind of culture, it's or resurrect it if you've lost it. Yeah, I think it is possible, absolutely, for a city to rebound and to have a second golden age or to come out of a situation where you would really never expect it to be a center of progress to suddenly take the world by storm. We need to remember that Florence, you know, the Renaissance came right after the, the Great Plague, the Black Death pandemic, right? Uh, a third, the city's population at least, was killed during that. And yet it rose from the ashes of that tragedy to produce some of the most beautiful artwork the world had ever seen and to create all so many other innovations as well in finance and other areas. So it is definitely possible to change a city's trajectory. And I think it is also possible for a city to regain an atmosphere of openness that's conducive to progress that it once had and maybe has lost to some degree. I, I want to pull a thread on Florence for a minute because I found it really interesting in, at least from my perspective reading through the book, it was the only moment of progress that was actually a second order effect. And so the line, and I'll read it from the book, was innovations in trade, business, and banking helped make Florence wealthy, and the Florentines spent enormous sums towards the patronage of artists. So all the other things were these kind of key moments or key technologies that were invented or evolved over time. 
But this was, Florence was so innovative in all of these other areas that suddenly that coming together through the wealth it created helped launch the Renaissance. So it, it just, it really fascinated me as this kind of very different type of innovation and progress moment. I don't actually see it as particularly different than the other chapters focused on artistic achievement because the pattern there seems to be again and again that great art, and we have this uh, this idea in our minds of the starving artist who creates art solely for its own sake and doesn't want any sort of reimbursement whatsoever and just sort of lives off of the joy of creating. But what we see again and again in history is that truly great art that uh, is still heralded as amazing ages later tends to emerge thanks to prosperity to fund that art. If you look at the emergence of the novel in Kyoto, this took place at the royal court during uh, Heian era Japan. And it was a competition among very wealthy courtiers to try to seem the most sophisticated that really drove the funding and the patronage of the arts. In Florence, these wealthy banking families were uh, in a similar way competing to patronize the best artists. In Vienna, during its era of greatest musical achievement. Uh, it was, again, the court. It was uh, the people who had a lot of money at that time who were suddenly making music a very lucrative career. And this drew so many musicians to Vienna to create music there because they wanted to be reimbursed for uh, their musical creations. So I think that rather than seeing uh, prosperity as something that it actually or you know robs people of the desire to create great art. I think that we should see prosperity and the funding of art as uh, entirely compatible with and in fact conducive to the creation of truly great world-changing innovative art. When I think about Florence and I think about Athens and some of these more in and Vienna, some of these more movement oriented there's a lot of names that we clearly, Da Vinci, Socrates, Plato, Mozart, that we still know today. What is the intersection then between this generalized moment and innovation and prosperity and the individual genius? Like would, would, would Leonardo still have been Leonardo if he wasn't in Florence or did Florence, I mean, obviously it's a counterfactual and I know, but how do those kind of come together? Because you talked about you didn't do flight with the Wright brothers. You didn't do electricity, which you could have, you know, we could have done, you know, where Edison was and I think he was in New Jersey. And so where, where's that confluence come from? It's true that you can have a particular individual who is a genius and they're separated from any other geniuses and yet they still manage to create incredible innovations. But when you have many people working together, who are all very innovative, it can kind of have a compounding effect. Think about the sort of, I don't like the word synergy very much, but think of the sort of synergy you would have had in classical Athens. It's just the sheer number of geniuses whose names we still know today you could bump into on the street. Renaissance Florence was the same way, as you say. And in some cases, uh, the, the great innovators whose names have come down to us through history, they weren't born in those cities. They moved there because they were drawn to that intellectual atmosphere and they wanted to work with other great scholars. And we often uh, see this, again, connected to that theme of openness. Cities that are more open 
to and foreign people or people from other places coming in and are also more open to strange ideas, ideas that might not be accepted yet at that time and allowing for that sort of free debate. Those cities are going to thrive because by attracting some of the best minds of their day and by allowing for free discussion, they can recombine ideas that are already out there or come up with entirely new ideas to solve the problems that they're facing in innovative ways. And that's really how you make positive change. You'd said earlier that a lot of these, it was over time, right? And they, they, they progressed. Um, some cases it was very much the, like the invention of writing. It was a great picture that you had a pictograph of kind of how cuneiform went from the, the higher, the picture graphs to the, the actual writing. And, Obviously, that took uh, took uh, a considerable amount of time. The one that stands out to me, though, was the printing press. That was the lightning moment of the world just changed because this got invented. So, and we all, obviously we all know about the Gutenberg Press. So, how did you kind of see that being so different? And could that back to our earlier point? I don't know if the history was that happening elsewhere, and this was you know he won the race. Or is it because we have that momentary genius who really changed the world? So printing, uh, it was obviously originally invented in ancient China. And that's mentioned in the book as well in the chapter on Hangzhou. During the Song Dynasty, they actually did have early printing, but it was used in a very limited way. It didn't catch on. It didn't change the world. And so you're right that Mines is kind of the oddball of the chapters and that it's about the disbursement a technology. And in that chapter as well, I think we mentioned this already, but that's also the exception to the peace rule that tends to define these different centers of progress. That was a city where there was turmoil and chaos and Gutenberg had to repeatedly leave the city and he kept coming back because it was his hometown, but there was so much discord there. It would disrupt the uh, supply of everyday goods and food and people's homes would be set ablaze. And it was not a great place to be. And eventually, he and his many printmaking apprentices dispersed, and you had this diaspora of people with the knowledge of printmaking traveling through Europe. There's a map in the book that shows just how rapid over the years this uh, disbursement really was, thanks to so many people fleeing the chaos in mines. And so this is, again, kind of an exception to the other cities in the book, and it's a good contrast uh, to them, I think, to see how even when you have a situation that would not seem at all conducive to progress, uh, sometimes that can also be a catalyst for change. I want to stick on the exceptions to the rule. So another one that I thought was interesting was Edinburgh. And I want, I want to read the quote that I pulled. So Edinburgh was an improbable center of progress. A relatively small, unkept, and inhospitable locale emerged from a century of instability to take the world by storm. Widespread literacy, open-mindedness, intense debates at intellectual gatherings, and a practical grounding aided the city's success. Edinburgh was essentially a small university town that punched far above its weight in human achievement. So what can we take from Edinburgh that links it to the other cities and then also what makes it distinct? The thing that makes it distinct, as you say, is definitely that we're talking about this very small city that at the time was almost, you know, a backwater and it was uh, it also emerged from a century of chaos. It had just undergone a lot of discord before its era of greatest contribution to human achievement. But the things that tie it to the other cities and the lessons that we can take 
away from it, I think are really about, again, openness and debate because Edinburgh was a place where you had the proliferation of what were called reading societies and intense debates and discussions and openness to all sorts of new ideas taking place in those reading societies and in the pubs and in the university classrooms in that city. So even though the population was relatively small, uh, that sort of openness allowed for greater creativity. And another lesson I think that we can take from Edinburgh is how different forms of progress build on each other. Because one uh, thing I note at the beginning of that chapter is that even though it was very poor, actually, for its era at the beginning, it had just undergone an intense literacy campaign. And the motives behind that literacy campaign were essentially uh, religious. Uh, they wanted everyone, no matter how poor, to be able to at least uh, read some amount of the Bible. But the the repercussions of having perhaps the highest literacy rate in the world as a result of that campaign were huge in terms of uh, creating a larger pool of people who could potentially contribute to some of these debates and intellectual discussions, thanks to having that knowledge of literacy. So how much of it is, we talk about this attraction, right? People wanting to go, you know, going back to a city, and then dispersion. Thinking on Edinburgh for a second, from your perspective, so is the the golden age, the moment, is what led up to, say, Adam Smith and Wealth of Nations? Or is it at Wealth of Nations became almost an anchor point, and then everybody came into the city, and then that was really what set up the flywheel? Oh my gosh, it was uh, the Scottish Enlightenment. Adam Smith was definitely one of the defining figures of that, and he, he is mentioned in the book at length. Uh, but there are a number of other great innovators making innovations in so many different fields architecture, medicine, science, philosophy. Uh, they really invented modern social science, not only Adam Smith with economics, but think about David Hume. There are so many different figures at that time contributing to intellectual advancement and progress in different ways that the subtitle for that chapter is just Scottish Enlightenment. I couldn't even pick one particular innovation, the social sciences, really. Uh, but even outside of that, they were creating so many different advancements. One of the things that I know we talk a lot about today as a power of innovation and progress is different sectors, different ideas coming together. And so something like you know, these reading societies in, in Edinburgh, were we seeing a lot of interaction between those groups? Did uh, you know? Did the philosophers and the economists talk and connect, and out of that came different ideas, or was it still very siloed, as we all can kind of complain about today? Oh, there was a lot of interaction, and there was a lot of debate, and you had different uh, sort of rival reading societies with different bents, and you had a lot of disagreement among the different scholars working there at the time. And one of the benefits, perhaps, of it being this small university town is that all of the great figures of the day did have uh, the potential to meet and interact with one another. We think about in ecosystems and you know, connectivity. And we talk about, I know we've talked about size of the, of the places and the relative size. And there's almost, you want the huge effect of that population, all the different minds coming in. I mean, that's one of the conversations about, you know, why we want to be a spacefaring species. We want to have a trillion Einsteins in that level that kind of come together. But what's the trade-off or, or what's the tension between you have a giant city of a Tokyo or New York or London size today, but then the real progress moments happens in these kind of like the reading societies. It's these, these smaller 
almost, you know, putting together almost nuclear reactions. You're putting all of these together and then boom, you've got an, you've got an innovation. So how do we think about that when trying to apply that to kind of modern times? It's a great question. I think that more uh, people, a larger pool of people to draw on to, that can then be gathered together uh, in smaller groups, depending on their interests. I think that is often how you get these great achievements. Uh, having a smaller population, as we see in the book, can work as well. Uh, but the more people you have, uh, if they are freely allowed to engage in uh, the exchange of ideas and innovation and trade and so forth, the more potential progress they can make. It's true that, uh, that you lose that sort of small town feel sometimes, but it's also true that even within very large cities, you can have smaller uh, societies or groups of people and subcultures that meet and that create innovations in different areas. And how do you, bring it out to kind of the present a bit, how do you think that the digital revolution, remote work, some of those things are starting to influence these same kind of questions that we're looking at because we're both bringing people together because, you know, you and I are not in the same city and doing this, but at the same time, it then, there's a geographic spread, right? There isn't the same kind of creative collisions and I can be walking down the street and run into Plato and Socrates if I'm in Athens or I run a down and I'm running into Michelangelo and Leonardo, which by the way, it all sounds really cool. You know, just the, those kind of people walking around. So how do you think that influences as we think about applying the lessons going forward? I think that question and figuring out the answer to it, that's going to define the near future profoundly. Up until now, urbanization has been the big trend. People have been moving in closer and closer proximity to each other. This has been going on for a long time. And if that were to reverse, if new technologies were to allow enough people to work productively together while many miles apart, to actually reverse that long-standing trend of urbanization and lead more people to live in rural areas, that would represent a huge change. And uh, you know, will virtual reality technology get to a point where uh, a rural area truly is as productive as an urban one and nothing is lost and you're able to uh, you know, interact uh, in a virtual town square with all the great minds of your day and then take off your headset and go out onto your farm and you're in a rural area? I don't know. I'm not going to try to predict the future, uh, but I think it will depend on the pace of technology and communications and in that area. And, uh, you know, as things stand today, where the virtual reality headsets still give people headaches and it's not that I'm realistic. one of them. <laughs> yes, uh, it's uh, at this point in time, I think there is something to being in person uh, and meeting face to face with others. But uh, in the future, could that change things to advancements in technology? And could we get to a point where de-urbanization has no slowdown effect whatsoever on the pace of innovation? I don't know. We've talked about some of these, you know, it's the it's the people coming together, it's the prosperity, it's the peacetime, it's the open-mindedness. When trying to apply these lessons, are they actually lessons we can apply or are they actually emergent properties of the cities that they're that we're looking at? I think to some extent they are lessons that we can apply. If you are a mayor 
or an urban leader and you want your city to become one of the next great world-changing centers of progress that really impacts civilization for centuries to come, uh, you can't guarantee that, obviously, but you can do some things to make it somewhat more likely. Again, you can encourage a culture of openness, of intellectual openness and freedom to discuss controversial ideas even. I mean, this was a huge in Amsterdam, for example, during the Dutch Golden Age. This was a city which attracted a lot of controversial thinkers ranging from, uh, you know, John Locke, the father of liberalism, to uh, all, you know, almost his opposite, Thomas Hobbes, the absolute monarchist uh, defender, another famous English political philosopher, um, both at different times uh, sought out this city and took a refuge there, published books there because other printing presses you know, wouldn't touch some of these ideas. And that's because they were so controversial and allowing that debate of vastly different but controversial viewpoints to play out in the marketplace of ideas, part of that sort of openness, that contributed to some of the great innovations that Amsterdam saw during that era in art, in uh, business, in all sorts of different areas. And so I think that as an urban leader, uh, I mean, I think that your city is kind of doing it right here with your saying, keep Austin weird, right? Allowing people to uh, be different and allowing people to discuss these different uh, ideas that maybe aren't mainstream yet and have those discussions, even if they're controversial, even if they all disagree with each other. I think that kind of openness, that is extremely conducive to advancement throughout history. How do you, with so much of, of what we're talking about seems to be serendipity seems to be emergent. And so the concern that I have sometimes when I see city leadership, and I'll use that broadly, everything from the mayor to nonprofits, that when you attempt to steer, especially steer a city in a direction, whatever the direction may be, you are possibly snuffing out some of that, that serendipity. You're putting walls on it. You're putting, and you're like, oh, well, we should be going this way. And 99% of the time, you know, as soon as you say we should go this way, you're probably not right when it comes to innovation and, and those because something else is happening under the radar that you're not seeing. So how do you, how do you think about balancing that aspect? All right. I think that you cannot truly centrally plan a center of progress. All you can do is try to put the policies and institutions in place to allow people to come to the city if they wish to, to allow them to engage in experimentation and competition and collaboration and see what comes of it. But ultimately, it's the people in the city themselves who create progress and define that city's future. So I want to lay out a, a model I've been playing with when I'm thinking about kind of bringing it to, to Austin itself. I think that I, I always hated, I still hate the the Silicon XYZ monikers, the Silicon Hills, Silicon Beach, because you're, whenever you are using a term like that, you're basically, well, we're the next Silicon Valley. I mean, there's no such thing as the next Silicon Valley. Instead, it's the first, you know, Silicon Valley, the first Vienna, the first Manchester, right? And they became something different. At the same time, I can think, which is one of the reasons I, I had reached out and said I was really interested in the book, is that I think there's a lot that you can learn when looking at historical models and seeing what are the things that line them all together, and then obviously what are the things that are different. And I've begun working through what I'm calling the Austin three-city model, 
which is I think that we are this kind of convergence of modern Silicon Valley, the very digital innovations and the cutting edge AI robotics. Also 50s Detroit, which I was actually, I thought was going to be on the list when I, uh, when, when I first opened the book. Really, well, I, considered, I considered including Detroit. Automobiles, huge in our history. It's, I mean, it's, and it's, it's funny because you said automobiles, and I think of 50s more from the manufacturing perspective. Yes, manufacturing too. It's the car, it's the car itself was the, the output of that, but it really is that manufacturing and the creation element. And then the, the most recent, which is why I found it was interesting with the with the Paris Enlightenment, was uh, the twenties cafe culture of Paris, mm-hmm. and so in bringing those kind of bits together. So how do one love to know your your thought on this? It's, it's still kind of working through it, and then thinking about those kind of taking models from cities and thinking about almost what you said before. It's the innovation and the progress is remixing old things into something new. Right. Think about those three different eras have in common in those three different cities, right? You've got an incredible entrepreneurial drive in San Francisco in 1920s Paris. You've got this great openness and this uh, sort of artistic experimentation and openness to trying new things. Detroit, you've got so much productivity and hard work. I mean, there's if you combine all of those different attitudes, I think you're onto something. Those same sorts of features do tend to appear again and again in places that become centers of progress. And uh, when we're thinking about progress, it's easy to get tied into a golden age. And each city in the mm. book is featured for one in one particular era. But as we were discussing as well, it's possible to have a renaissance and come back and Uh, have your city achieve great things once again. There is a movie, which if you're a big fan of 1920s Paris, you might like, called Midnight in Paris. You might have seen it. It's based on an older French movie called La Belle uh, Nuit, The Beautiful Night. And the plot is basically that someone who's a huge fan of 1920s Paris goes to Paris through some sort of uh, you know, movie time travel. He's able to actually get to the 1920s and he meets some of the great people of that day. But then he also notices that they're not super happy either. And he meets someone from that era who romanticizes an even older era, the the Belle Epoque. And they go back to that time when the can-can was invented and it was another sort of moment in Paris's history that was uh, full of creativity. And the people there uh, long for the days of, uh, of the days featured in my book of the uh, Enlightenment. And the lesson from that is really that uh, in everyone in every era, they romanticize something about the past. But to look forward instead, I think, is more conducive to progress, especially for a place like Austin. Take those lessons from the past. Uh, but yeah, like you said, don't try to be the next Silicon Valley or the next 1920s Paris focus on being Austin and what incredible new innovations you can contribute to humanity. Oh, I love it. And I think that's a great place to kind of wrap with. I always end with the same question. What's next? Oh, what's next? Well, if you are someone who, uh, despite listening to this podcast, somehow is not interested in cities and really prefers to think about the individuals who we're talking about within those different places who contribute to progress 
in March of next year, approximately, uh, we're going to be releasing a companion volume called Heroes of Progress about people who change the world. And that will be another great series of vignettes that will teach you a lot about history and some of the great, inspiring people who made it happen. Well, I'm going to have to pull that thread for a moment. What is, uh, I don't know, obviously how far the book is through, but how much overlap is there between the heroes and these cities? Is it, you know, they all are in these cities that you put? There are, it's like half. I'm just, I'm really curious. So there is a, some overlap. For example, Gutenberg is one of the heroes of progress. Mines is obviously a city featured in Centers of Progress, but there's not as much overlap as you'd think. Uh, so Heroes of Progress has a different author, uh, Alexander Hammond. And uh, he wanted to focus his book more on recent innovations. He used a very strict criteria. To be a hero of progress, you had to either save or improve millions, not thousands, but millions of lives. And uh, as you can imagine, that would bias it all a little bit more forward in history, people who created medical innovations and so forth. And so it actually tend it covers a much smaller period and more recent period of history. So there's not as much overlap as you think. This is, uh, I think my book is better if you want a real whirlwind crash course in global history, all the way going back to the beginning of permanent settlements. Yeah, I love it. And I, I said I found it a fascinating read. And just lessons to take and still kind of uh, rolling it over in my head. But you know, this has been really fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.